Ha 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 ha. Charisse, you're hilarious. You tell great jokes, Charisse. Oh my God. They're so funny. We should use this in the uh, year end. It is recording. Year end clips. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's go. All right, guys, we are recording again from FM Below Ground. We're going to try to make it a weekly thing. Yes. Like every Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. It Although probably doesn't really matter to listeners where we are recording from other than audio quality. We are on a continual search for better audio quality. At least Eugene is. Although I recently, him. I think we figured, I, I think I figured it out. It Thank you for better. trying to give me the credit. I do very little in terms of audio production in this side of the things. Okay. What's up with you? Not much. People keep asking me that and I have nothing to say because nothing How are you feeling changes. today? How are you feeling today? Oh, he throws back my words in my face. I feel for myself because you know that I am constantly sleepy. I actually feel relatively awake. Could be the very large milk tea I had about 30 minutes before getting here. Taylor, let's just get into it. I think we, we wasted it. we wasted all our banter setting up. There wasn't really quality banner, so you guys didn't yeah. miss out much. We just got out of our system. All right, uh, you go first. Okay. I didn't read your article. I like to go in. It's like I'm flying into the sun, you know? <sighs> flying in blind. 151 episodes later, still not preparing. Isn't that a testament to my ability to think on the fly? It's okay, a test. Dude. It's a weekly test. Okay. My subject this week comes from The Atlantic. The article is called The Problem with Being Perfect. Subheadline, a trait that's often seen as good can actually be destructive. The author is Olga Kazan. And actually what is funny is that this piece was published in 2018. But I did not realize that until you called that out in your heading regarding this article in the Make and Briefing. Yeah, it's from a while ago. But I also think that just because something is a little bit older doesn't mean it's not still relevant. No, totally. I think it's completely relevant. I I read it and did not feel like those things were not still going on. How did you come in across the world it today? I do not remember. I feel really Super bad. Super not helpful, and right? This is something that happens a lot because when I'm searching for for things or I come across things, I don't always remember where I find it. Yeah. So I don't always have the old hat tip attribution call out i don't remember i think it was on twitter i can't give a hat tip to anyone specific it could have just been a stranger as well on twitter yeah. so what this article is is the author spoke with jessica Pryor, a psychologist with the family institute at northwestern university and she makes it her work to study this tendency in young adults to strive for perfection in their work at all costs and she says 
you know, the reason perfectionism is literally dangerous is because it can lead to depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. So super cheerful start to the subject. Okay, so that's like extreme perfectionism. That extreme perfectionism can lead to negative mental mental health that results in does she give examples of perfection because i immediately think in my mind that someone with less experience doesn't know what perfection is because they don't have enough experience to know what that looks like i disagree for example when you do something for the first time and you you haven't seen a professional do it or someone that's done at a high level how do you know what perfection looks like don't you just have your own standard of what perfection is to a degree, That's what yes. perfection is. Perfection is your own internal expectations. And so different people's bars of perfectionism is different. You know, uh, it's not that all of these you're people... You're thinking more from a micro perspective. I'm thinking more macro. I don't know what you mean by what micro I'm thinking, and macro well, in this like, example. Like I just mean Your that, example of perfection is different than what is potentially an absolute Well, I don't even think that a professional version of something necessarily is, quotation marks, perfect. Mm, no, but you know... Like, for example, you winning a race. I right? think perfectionism. Okay. I don't, I don't actually. I, I, cannot, don't, I cannot believe, I can't believe we we're having, kicking off so early into this. I cannot believe we are having a debate about the definition of perfectionism because I think you are mistaking it for, you know, the highest quality caliber of work in the world. Which is perfection. No, that's not. Perfectionism is your individual perfect idea. Okay, and it's uh, not like I guess so. I don't disagree with that, but I just also, th I personally think it's a very microscopic sort of approach towards thinking about perfection. That's why I'm so like. So, do you hold yourself to some kind of like professional standard of your work? Yeah, I try to, of course. Like, for example, great example. Well, yeah, I'll use this example. Like, when I watch soccer, football, right, and I watch how a goalkeeper plays. Like, obviously, that's my position. That is the standard, right? That should be the standard oh of perfection. My God. And if I'm playing and I know what perfection is, it actually makes it easier to get better because you know what the standard perfection is. Same thing with photography and whatever, right? I think there's like levels and even production. That's why I'm so confused. I mean, I, maybe I look at this thing way, way differently than anyone else. I mean, no, maybe you don't. Maybe other people do as well. I didn't actually write down what Jessica Pryor defines perfectionism as. But I can say, okay, so it's based off of this study. This article refers to a study published in January of 2018, 2018 that showed that the drive to be perfect in body, mind, and career has increased since the 1980s. And scientists studied some 41,000 American, Canadian, and British college students who completed a test measuring themselves against three types of perfectionism. This doesn't exactly answer your question, mm -hmm. but I thought this was interesting. And they categorize perfectionism by being self-oriented or, or, in other words, an irrational desire to be perfect, socially prescribed, in other words, perceiving excessive expectations from others, and other-oriented or placing unrealistic standards on others. You know, I think mainly I wanted to talk about that self-oriented perfectionism, this yeah. irrational desire to be perfect. And I kind of see where you're coming from in terms of like that professionalism, that external ideal in the world i don't think that's how perfectionism works in individual brains i think the best example here is actually thinking back to grade school mm -hmm. which 
this entire article made me think about. Okay, so perfect perfect in school is a little bit easier because it's 4.0, right? Uh, yeah, in some in, in, American systems. In American yeah. systems. Yeah. I grew up in American system, so for me. We four, had 100%. 4.0. Okay, so yeah. we're, or 100%. And so you had to get A's, right? Or like you had to get top marks in order to get as close to this numerical perfect. And so I think school is easy to talk about because there's a very, there's a universally accepted standard of mm-hmm. what perfect is. Is this okay so far? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. fun. And when you try to reach for that 4.0, which is not to say that you shouldn't and you're well adjusted, okay, mm-hmm. then when you fail, like when you get a B, then you're able to assess your failure and move on. But if you are poorly adjusted as a perfectionist, then you archive your failures as a way to remind yourself to do better. So you use those negative experiences to compel yourself to work harder. And that's what makes it mm-hmm. potentially unhealthy. Mm-hmm. No disagreement so far? I'm no, like, I, mean, I keep waiting I th- for you to like I, interrupt I me. think in general, it's everything you've, you've outlined in terms of how people create that bar of perfection is really dependent on different factors, right? Like social, like, yeah, what you mentioned. Exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. Break here in the uh, article referencing. Would you describe yourself as a perfectionist? Uh, depends. No, I wouldn't. Be, I, I, I think I understand what perfection could look like, but then I'm also sufficiently pragmatic to know that trying to achieve that level of perfection is not necessary or it's massively diminishing returns. You're a smart man, Eugene. So I told my partner, Stanley, prior to coming out here that today I would be talking about perfectionism and perfectionists. And he said, oh, you mean you'll be talking about yourself? So that's a, I set him up to roast me in that way. But I I do think being real that like I've struggled with perfectionism essentially all my life and i do trace it back to grade school actually like when you could get marked and i've been trying so the the article doesn't address enough why people i think are pushed to perfectionism Mm -hmm. oh yeah i think this is actually a really interesting in the study they showed the rise okay like they're able to show by numbers that people are trying, are obsessed with perfectionism more than they were in the 1980s, okay? It's so like that's the numeric figure on it. But they are super blurry on why people are more perfectionistic now than they used to be. So they gave some potential reasons, but again, even the scientists themselves were like, these are just, you know, guesses. I mean, I, I could identify from my own personal experience why perfectionism or sort of the achievement of perfection was important to myself. Okay. Let's hear it. I mean, it was all identity generation, right? So oh, I don't know. Are you saying that like that's oh, what yeah. it's going to be for me? I mean, I, if that's I think so. what it is for you. The one thing about perfection, if you can achieve it, is it allows you to create an identity. What do you mean? So, for example, I, I've used this example before, but when I played soccer and played football a lot, perfection meant winning. Right. And winning meant I had a place amongst all my non-Asian peers that I had a place at the table. Mm. Right. 
So that's something that is comes. I don't even think twice about why someone would want to be perfect because they're trying to compensate for something. Because when you achieve perfection, yes, there's like this innate thing, but there's also external validation. Yeah. So that's why I really think your underlying goal to achieve perfection, especially I, I, I know professional sports the best, right? But your underlying desire to achieve that is to, you know, growing up as a kid, oh, this this created a stronger bond with my dad, mm. right? Or this is to silence the haters. This mm. is X, Y, Z. So you're mainly talking about the social reasons, which they mentioned, which I was just about to say. So the rise in perfectionism could be attributed to social media pressure of, course. of comparison. Yeah. You know, it's so much easier to see what other people are doing. And what you described in terms of when in physical life, now you can do that virtually and compare yourself to everyone. Also, this, you know, rise in a belief in meritocracy that if I just work harder then I will earn more money. I will be more set up in life, you know, and it's just dependent on me being able to drive myself further. Okay. Versus like a belief that, you know, luck is a really big factor. And then also there is that eternal pressure of making more money and being more educated and reaching significant milestones in life, promotion-based, et cetera. But, but that in itself goes back to identity. It could be identity, but it could be about being comfortable. It could be, yeah. It could be about, you know, if I earn more money, then I will have a big house and I will live this super comfortable, cushy life. Like that could be the motivation. But it is still about values, right? Yeah. Um, just not necessarily just social, like external values. But I think like, okay, I know we're not here to psychoanalyze me. But I suspect that there are also people like me out there where it's not just about comparison or competition, but an, an internal feeling that you can do better. And that's the thing for me about perfectionism is that I always know that I could do better. And unlike you, I do not have a good gauge on where my priorities should be. As in, you know how you were describing... You being know, pragmatic. Yeah, being so pragmatic. So the thing I've learned. Being aware of diminishing returns. I'm not very good at that. And I know that about myself. But the thing I've learned is that in terms of prioritization, I mean, maybe you're saying that your prioritization is not so good. Yeah. Right. In terms of where that sits in the hierarchy. The one thing I've realized is that if you care enough about something and you, let's say you care a lot, right? Let's just assign an arbitrary number and you care 97 out of 100. If you take 10% off and you end up at, you know, 88, you're probably still like 20 points of caring, air quotes, caring more than the majority of the people out there. And I have to thank Noah Callahan Bever, who said this quote, it must've been like over 10 years ago. I sat in on a presentation he gave at Powell, Hawaii, and he was saying, because at that time I was like, oh man, you have to be like 100% better than everyone else. He like. Actually, you just have to be 10% better than what's out there. Because the reality is that once you enter this, this uncharted territory, no one even knows you're necessarily 20 or 30% better. I mean, some things are, are quantifiable, but in the world we operate, quote unquote, creative culture, yeah. it's not often quantifiable. So in reality, yeah. I just need to be discernibly better and arguably 10% is discernibly better. So yeah. I'm not saying do shitty work. No, I'm just saying that not. like you actually have this huge margin. 
huge margin. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And it's it's also about, you know, how much energy and effort does doing that extra, you know, going from, what do you say, 72 to 82? Well, I picked a really, you, I should have said, you know, I should have said like, oh, from 100 okay, let's to, say, to 90. Let's say 80 to 100. Yeah. Okay. So I can put in 80% energy and effort and I will still be, as you said, discernibly better. How much does it cost me to put in that extra 20% of energy and effort? You know, it, like you're saying, is is probably not worth it. And also, what, what is the me. outcome? Is it for a client? Is it for yourself? Is it an art project? Does it have a timeline? Does it have a budgetary restriction? These are all micro calculations I make in my head. Well, this is related to a question I was going to ask you, which is, do you think it's possible that creative work benefits from an individual's drive for perfectionism? On yeah. the flip side, is there a way in which creative work is flawed? as a result of a drive towards perfectionism. We've talked about the, the f- last point you made, where as a creative who's willing to put in the effort to strive for perfection, you often work longer, harder for something that really only appeases yourself, mm. right? So you kind of get rinsed for that. Or you get, they're, they're like, oh, I know this person is really passionate about the job, so I'm going to pay them less because I know they'll do it anyways. Yeah. We've talked about that before, yeah. right? Yeah. I think yeah. on the other side... You're easier to take advantage of, aren't you? Me? Not or you in... specifically, the person in oh, your yeah, example. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, me? No, the person in your example <laughs> yeah, yeah, who yeah. other people recognize is exactly. perfect, perfectionistic. Exactly. Then people know I can pay this person, you know, X, where someone else would give me 80%. This person's going to give me 100 yes, for the same exactly. amount of money. But if I look by the other one, your strive for perfection it's this internal like fuel. Yeah. Right. I mean, if it's you're motivation, right? It's motivation. I soon became disenchanted with a lot of things. Like for example, let's say me as a photographer, I'm not really a professional photographer. Right. But I take a lot of photos. And if I realize that I'm at level 73 and if I want to go to level, you know, 93, it'll take me this much time and effort. And I'm like, it's not worth it for me. Mm. But I am consumed with being as good as I can and above average. Like maybe that's my goal is just to be above average in everything and just jump from thing to thing. So yeah. for example, for me, if if photography is done, like I'm like, I'm maxed out. I'll make incremental, you know, I'll be in 10 years, I'll be level 75. But maybe I'll jump to another thing where I'm going to learn how to do ceramics or something. Yeah. And I want to get to level 70 as quickly as possible. And then after that, I'll move on to the next thing. I think that's actually my strength is less about being overly consumed by one thing, but being able to dedicate a lot of energy and time for this short sprint Mm. to get this core competency that I feel comfortable with that I know is, you know, up quote unquote above average and then move on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you about my weakness, which is about to sound like a humble brag, but I think this is my downfall when it comes to perfectionism is that I have this idea of what my capacity is, you know, what my capabilities are. And I know that the work I deliver is almost never what my capabilities are. Mm. I could always do better. And I just know that about myself. Like I, I know that if I had the time and I cared more then this work you would be better. The resources, like then what I mean yeah, by that is the resources. you're creating something. Maybe there's a better art director out there rather than you doing everything. And that's one thing I've had to instruct certain people is that sometimes you setting yourself up for success is about asking for more money because it allows you to bring in the right help. So 
I, you know, here's an example. I had to help shoot somebody and they never asked for a photo budget. And I was like, I'll shoot it for, for free. Right. Yeah. But then I also helped another friend shoot something. They were able to get a photo budget and that allowed me to hire an assistant. Mm. Right. So that she automatically recognized that, oh, these photos are better. Yeah. But then she couldn't fault herself because like I didn't even ask for a photo budget. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where I'm getting at with this. And I think your example is a good example that creative work can be flawed by an individual drive for perfectionism because it puts all the pressure on you as an individual. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm going to stay at home and slave away my computer and do version and version and version after this because I need to be perfect rather than acknowledging, you know, this would be extremely, you know, the the amount of effort would be lowered and quality higher if I brought in other people or if mm-hmm. I asked for more resources, yeah. like you said, rather than putting the pressure on my own ability to just like add hours. Yeah. So yeah. this goes back to my initial challenge of your point, which is my ability to determine what perfection is. And even for you comes on the back of experience. So I don't really <laughs> trust like when, it, when a 16 year old is like, Oh man, I'm going to strive to make the perfect, whatever. Like in all honesty, it's, it's a very small bubble of perfection. But the, you, right. And I almost think that in, in actuality, like most people, when they strive for perfection, yes, it's on a singular level for me, myself as a 16 year old, like I feel this is perfect. I'm going to put it out. OK, but I don't think it's helpful to tell a 16 year old, don't worry about it because your concept of perfect isn't even accurate. Exactly. I think that's that, actually perfect. No, I don't think that's helpful. I think that's actually a great way to approach it because you tell them that actually it's the outcome that doesn't matter. It's the fact you're actually going and doing something. Right. So don't even don't even worry about perfection because actually perfection is both impossible to achieve and requires to have sufficient context. So if I'm 16, like I would almost want someone to be motivated and invigorated by the idea of creating, not that the thing they're going to put out is not perfect. So okay. you don't understand. I, mean, I actually think my point, I don't even I don't see any. I don't know if it's because we're standing, but we're so much more fired up today. But I, know. I actually is it don't. We're standing? I actually don't see any grounds to what you said about like telling a sixteen-year-old. Like, actually, if anyway, okay. if anything, it's deprioritizing perfection because perfection is an outcome. I think we would both. It sounds like we are both agreeing that you have to discourage the sixteen-year-old from pursuing perfectionism. But I think the method of getting there might be different for the two of us. What I'm trying to Mine's say like is that blunt force. Yeah. Mine is would be more like about the asking them, what do you really care about? Is this the thing that you want to be perfect in? Right. And not trying to like disillusion them of their concept of what perfection is. You know, like it, when you're a teenager, when you're a young person, even when you're in college, like you're you're not going to get shaken off of your concept of what a perfect designer, music artist, et cetera, is. That's that's my. But don't you think that the earlier you're told that you're not perfect and you should actually reorientate how you approach creating and releasing stuff, that the pressure gets removed and actually you you enter this whole process with much more liberation. Actually, that is in the Atlantic article. Funny enough that you didn't read it. It is about not telling young people um, that you did a perfect job essentially, or that you did an imperfect job and instead to focus on values or the process, right? Yeah. Like you're saying. And okay, this is the most helpful thing I got from the Atlantic article. 
by the way, besides like factual bits of it. There was a clinical psychologist quoted named Michael Brustein, and he said that for his clients who have perfectionist tendencies, he asked them to create life values for themselves that are important to them, as opposed to making their motivation the achievement of specific goals. So for example, instead of your specific goal being, I'm going to get a promotion this year, which is this very like tangible milestone, you figure out what your life values are in relation to work. So mm-hmm. it could be, I don't know, what's a appropriate career goal as a replacement of a promotion? I'm going an to- An award. No, that would still be miles. You're just messing with me. Something like, I mean, the thing is that life values are so much more abstract, right? So it could be like, oh, I was a more creative thinker at my job. Or it could be like, oh, I mentored. Is that too solid of a milestone that like I mentored someone as opposed to like a promotion? I don't know. Ability to set your own hours. That's not really a milestone, is it? Still too concrete of a thing. Life values, I feel like has to be like. Be happy doing what you do. (sighs) You know, some judgment of like contentment or satisfaction. Anyway, Eugene and I aren't very good at coming up with examples, but there is supposed to be this difference between values that you cherish and go for versus goals that are you know metric based not to say that you shouldn't have goals that are metric based Mm -hmm. but it's just that you can become obsessed with them to a point of negative mental health yeah i have nothing else to add i actually thought this was a really interesting conversation so everything you mentioned i don't know why but it's a lot of stuff I've thought about, which is why I, I had strong, both strong opinions and a relatively quick retort yeah. when you asked me, right? And I don't, I've, I don't know if it's because I've generally been super honest with myself. Like I'm usually, well, you, you know me, I'm, I'm super hard on myself, right? Yeah, I'm usually tearing myself down first before anyone else because it, it, it goes back to the thing because perfection is a fuel for, it's like a fuel for passion and keeps you going. And actually, I've used that quite often, right? If you look at even making, like there are times when it just wasn't working out and like we just persevered. We're still here. But actually, that's with making, it is both an example of perfectionism being a downfall and a strength. Because, you know, we talked a lot towards the end of last year or fall about our desire to put out something that was perfect, getting getting in the way of us just moving quickly. And still a little bit the case, I'd say. Trying different things. On the other hand, like you just said, perfectionism is what has kept us alive till now, all these years. Perfectionism? Mm, yeah, like the passion. Like for that drive. Yeah. Like that, what you're, we're d- describing of having that mindset. Yeah. Or, or a vision of what it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think perfect is a weird word too. It's just like this idea that there is this global standard that we are all going to agree to and i don't I, I don't think so that's why i argued so hard for perfect being on an individual level yeah. perfect can be quantified in all aspects yeah in my opinion so for example let's say you paint something right could it be done faster that already is a way to quantify is it could it be even more perfect could you do it faster and save more time or could you or could you do something for longer 
right? Because you run longer. I don't know. Like what yeah. I'm saying is that like there, there's already okay, like, time, timing in itself is such a weird. It's not really a construct because it exists around some sort of scientific sort of aspect, right? Okay, but, I know we mostly talk about creativity yeah. on this podcast, but this is where I think the idea of perfection is nebulous. Which is, can you be a perfect parent, partner, friend? Like that's it, it, that's so hazy. I don't think that there is this no. standard for that. No, of course not. But you, we can still we still tend to describe people that way and their relationships with one another that way. Yeah. Probably to our downfall. Should we move on? Let's do it. I do like the standing thing. I think it helps. I actually think it makes it like snappier. Also, you feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because you're like standing the whole time. I'm actually slightly warm. I feel like the spotlight is right on me. All right, what you got for us? My topic this week is magazines pivot beyond fashion as age of superficiality. And I'm going to have to click into the link because on Dropbox paper on my phone, it cut it off. Unbelievable. Doesn't prepare my subject. Also doesn't prepare for his. I don't know what to tell you. I actually really like to, well, what, what's that thing where you just show up and you debate and you talk? It doesn't help. I have slow internet too, so it's taking a while to load up here good thing we edit this podcast all right it's finally been pulled up magazines pivot beyond fashion as age of superficiality ends and this appeared in wwd and it was written by tianwei jang sharice had this comment in passing that it was actually a pretty a pretty fluffy piece shots fired I use, shots fired I didn't use the word fluffy but you're like oh it's just a bunch of examples i think the topic well, itself is great the topic is good. The topic is great. Although, yeah, it's just a bunch of the whole piece is generally a bunch of examples of magazines that are speaking about topics that fulfill the headline. I mean, that's good research, but doesn't go much further. Yes. What it does is it indicates that it's a real trend. Yeah. It's not just one magazine. Yes. So this piece that appeared in WWD discussed how fashion magazines are now turning the corner and required increasingly to reposition themselves politically. Maybe I take that back. Maybe not reposition because I think that in general fashion is typically left-leaning, yeah. right? It's more about the breadth of topics now expand beyond fashion. And it talks about a lot of leftist liberal things. I that- mean... I don't, is it fair to call all of them leftist liberal? Like some of them are just current affairs. Current affairs. Okay. Like some of them are not such. Correct. I they're not all like BLM, right? Where you're making a stance on a loaded political racial issue. Some of them are just like, hey, did you know this is happening in this part of the world? You yeah. Know, maybe good we example. should be aware. So that- one of the first examples they use is ID Magazine, which is kind of a stalwart of. British youth and fashion culture. Sure. As well as, you know, being a, a pretty important force globally. And they talk about how if you go to their site, there's everything from discussion around Ugandan dictator, the artist lineup at Joe Biden's inauguration, and Andre Leon Talley talking about Kamala Harris and the Netflix series Bridgerton. Yep, yep, yep. So it's really about expanding beyond what, what, what this fashion brand is doing, what product release. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's not just about, oh, this season, this creative director. It's so expansive that makes them 
Not really fashion magazines. Just very... It's almost like just a youth culture thing. A loose glue around fashion. Loose glue is accurate. Yeah. Thank you. Like Came that. up with that on the spot. Oh, boy. It's a, it's a watery glue. A thin glue. A thin glue. Okay. But I don't... Folks, I, li- I like watery. I like watery. Use, feel free to use watery glue. Watery glue. So I really like this passage. It involves uh, Natasia Stamuli, an online editor at One Granary. And she was talking about how, for them, I think they're a little bit of a higher-end publication in terms mm. of not just the superficiality, but basically... Their readership, which is fashion school students and talent scouts and top-level management at fashion houses, they're more engaged with content when it's placed in a greater context of education, sustainability, and political awareness. Mm. Uh, And she said this, and I quote, We feel a responsibility to look into what is happening in fashion schools worldwide and question the industry at large. We will continue documenting how creative learning is affected by the pandemic as well as how emerging designers are coping and surviving as small businesses and most importantly as people. And then furthermore, uh, Marcus Ebner, founder of the German fashion magazine Aptung Mode. I probably butchered that. <laughs> Anyways, he, he attributed this shift in fashion titles to what he called the end of the age of superficiality, which mm-hmm. fashion for the longest, I think in this most current era that's maybe coming to an end, yeah, it's mm-hmm. 100% superficiality, right? So... This maybe was in tandem with the Instagram social media era, right? I think that you saw that as Instagram, because Instagram in many ways is probably the most superficial cult- cultural pillar that exists, right? Yeah. No, no debate there. No, like I'm that. not. Yeah, no debate I'm there. I'm not debating it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Should we put, I don't know if I would blame the platform specific. It just happened to be the platform that everyone glommed onto. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would not necessarily point fingers at like the developers the way they made it doing this so much as like the rise of social media platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a quote, Marcus Ebner. We have serious problems in the world now and the audience longs for reliable and opinionated media, classic journalism, classic fashion stories. What we do is a profession and you have to train for and the influencer moment has changed that. But the pandemic exposed the no content momentum of most. I don't know if I'd use the word momentum there, but I guess yeah. just trying to indicate that most people were not publishing things of substance. Yeah, maybe. So one thing I'm curious is that, is it because we got older or because the last four years? I mean, we did get older. Well, I mean, we got older, but I'm just saying like in terms of maturity and the things we care about, is this why we are attaching to this topic? Like, is this why I picked it? Or is it because the last four years have created this super politically charged environment where everyone is forced to be political? Mm, I don't know about that second half. Let's put it this way. Because I don't think. Let's put it this way. If. Why did we not have. Well, let's put. Okay. Let me let me let me sort of lay everything out. I feel like you're just trying to make me give you an answer, but lay it out. The reason why I'm very curious about this point is that pre Donald Trump. Do you think we had a little bit more harmony on a global scale? No. You don't think so? I mean, I think that's such a US-centric way to look at things. But I think it's hard for you to not think. I just don't. You. I personally think that it's actually, we, we've been forced to really address 
the politicization the politicalization of the world because of what's happened in the last four years. Okay, I mean, okay. First of all, we need to clarify who we is. We can say about Eugene and Sharice specifically, personally, mm-hmm. and maybe you know, you and I feel comfortable saying because of the Trump administration and all of the various things that are unimaginable that happened the last four years, then the two of us became more politicized. I feel comfortable saying that and do not feel comfortable saying widespread. That, that is so. why. Look at, look no. at, look at, look at, I'm not going to digress too far okay, from okay, this, okay, okay. but if you look at the overall uh, things that are going on on a, on a global scale in terms of various political leanings of, of parties that are in control, for sure. I think that if anything, the Trump handbook opened up the door for a lot of like strongmen, like populist movements. Anyways, this is beyond okay, the point. What I, I'm trying okay, to say. We're not a political history let's, let's not get podcast. Into this. this is what I want to point out. Okay. For fashion specifically, I would argue that this has been happening pre-Trump era. So pre the last four years is that fashion has been trying to find ways to reckon with climate change. And fast fashion. And that, I think that is, is valid. That is prior to these four years. Fashion has been very slowly at first coming to terms with what does it mean to continue embracing these traditional seasons, you know, our terms of production, the way we average, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. And there has been a landslide. I don't know if I, I mean, I'm not in the business of drawing a pair, like a direct line to Trump administration to this change, but I do think there has been a landslide in the last couple of years where people have, consumers have been making real changes to their habits and therefore fashion companies have had to adjust Mm -hmm. to that problem. Yeah. So that I would say contributes to fashion magazines coverage. You know, they can't just rely on being a place that talks about what people can buy. Yeah. yeah about consumption. Yeah. Because people are consuming less. So yeah. they need to offer more than that as publications. Yeah. In terms of the politicization of things, I would actually attribute the general more awareness of people about what's going on in the world to the internet. So, I mean, you and I didn't exactly grow up as digital natives, right? Like we didn't grow right. up. Pretty much the first generation of people that were kind of on offline. Yeah, I got a smartphone like what halfway through college, personally. So it's a mix. But, but I had you a had computer, the internet. I had, computer, very yeah, early. I had internet and computer yeah. in my home from a young age. But in the last like what ten years, all anyone who's what sixteen, I guess, is growing up with the internet and smart devices their whole life. And I think that's what contributes, you know, think about your friend's kids, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't know, again, I don't know if I draw that straight line attributing it to Trump, but I would draw a line between like them just being online all the time. And then people online talk about things happening all over the world. They just have so much more access to information. And it's so common mm-hmm. to talk about all kinds of things. I think that the the way I look at it is people that have a command of the cultural mindshare have found it to be advantageous to take a stand. And I think that's been forced in some ways. So I, I, I don't look any further than Nike and Colin Kaepernick, right? Like that was in some ways forced, like not forced in terms of like the action, but like I think that that 
was a very real sort of like opportunity for them. They realized that came as a byproduct of the geopolitical landscape. Okay. I mean, I... That's that's maybe one, like the biggest example, but I, I do think there's some critical mass around that. And I think we've had to care more about all these things because they've been thrust in front of us. And it's been, you know, as you... This is my last point I'm going to make about politics, but it's like you've kind of noticed this big divide between the coastal elites and everyone else and who is generally the ones that are dictating culture to people on the on the on the coastal elites for better words like that's just the way it is i think that's this is in many ways why you've seen this culture war brewing right and now it's kind of like well how do you fight back against it well it's not really fighting back but what are things that people care about and it's they've been forced to care about because suddenly things they didn't have to care about are now thrust in their face okay first of all i disagree that it's just coastal elites that care about certain liberal subjects and i think it's not true to just say that people in yeah, it's a, yeah it's a generalization it but, is a generalization yeah. and ignores all of the people in non-big cities and coasts that also care about these subjects these you know certain values are they in the minority or the majority? Okay, fine. They're the minority, but I'm just trying That's to clarify here. Yeah. And when it comes to Nike and Colin Kaepernick, I agree that the administration of the last four years meant there were some really big current news that it felt like you had to say something on because to say nothing would be to be complicit in a side that you didn't agree with. However, I'm not convinced that this effect will last. Like, I don't think that, you know, the last four years is this moment in which everyone has changed permanently. Like, I think things will be less dramatic in the next couple of years. That's my hope. Things will be less dramatic overall. And then people won't take stances at all. That's my prediction. But doesn't that in itself suggest that something happened in the last four years that was a result of an over-politicalization of our cultures? That's what I'm trying to get at. I, I actually think I so, too. I, I think, think in a more harmonious environment where the geopolitical landscape is less charged. I think we need to, like, I, I feel like we need to, what's this? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to <laughs> yeah, use my hands. Right I'm, now? like, pulling apart. I feel like we need to pull apart two things. Okay, one yeah. is, like, the U.S. politics specifically. Okay, and then the other is like global current affairs, which includes things like climate change and the you know, the effect of fast fashion and cheap labor costs. Okay, and those are eternal ongoing issues. U.S. politics specifically in the last four years was, as I said, very dramatic. But I think, you know, the attention on that other side, those other subjects I mentioned and and things like that started before the first, you know, these past four years and will continue ongoing. Mm. U.S. politics specifically will die down. Yes. And that focus on that. Yes. Do you yeah. know, do you see what I'm trying to say? I, so like, I do. And then going back to your subject about fashion magazines, if they're not U.S.-based magazines, then I just don't know how much of it was affected by the last four years. I don't really think that's the point either. I think what's interesting to me is like, the watery glue that you've been talking about. Yeah. Like, I think it's interesting to me that ID has a history of being like, you know, 
very hardcore fashion subjects. I may be thinking and of it then from, diversifies. I may be thinking of it from more of a macro perspective, but oh, it's like the same thing you said about my subject. Exactly. But what I'm saying is that there's a chain reaction set off when you see someone who's technically a global leader make certain moves and that facilitates and or validates someone else's agenda in their own place. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. But anyways, I, I, I don't want to get too too far into it because I actually have That's some fine. more points. I mean, we talk so much about politics. It's, it's enough for the month. Yeah. One thing I, I think is really interesting based off of this is it does give an opportunity to create more meaning around fashion when it does come out. Because I think what you've done now is you've actually raised the bar in terms of what do you have to achieve before you're allowed to, re- not allowed, but like before you release something of substance. Mm. If we remove that that gross icky layer of superficiality mm. and now be like, hey, you know what? Before you could release a cookie, because assuming cookies are easier than a five layer cake, right? Okay, sorry. I was totally blindsided by the fact that you're using banking metaphors. I was, right, like, I was like, what is a cookie in fashion? Is that some sort of slang for a type of accessory? A takes, I literally was like, is that a bag? All right. What I mean is that if if the, the passing mark was something very simple. Okay. Like now, a cookie? Yeah. Like a cookie. Now you need a five-layer cake. All right? All and right. what I'm saying is that the five-layer cake in itself encompasses like, oh, is it sustainable? Is there a record of the supply chain of mm-hmm. where things are made? Does it have a great story? I wish I had, I wish I said three layer cake because then there'd be my three layers. But this is what not preparing gets you. Yeah, your you're metaphors right. You're right. Fall flat. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is like, hey, at the very least, like now that if you're going to put something out, your barrier to entry is higher. And then actually, this is a nice self regulating system because culture has created a, a gatekeeping moment mm. where, because we don't want the superficiality anymore. We yeah. actually were like, yo, you know what? We need some substance behind this. Yep. 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 So yep. that's kind of actually what I'm, most interested and excited about no me too and like something we can agree it's interesting because the gatekeeping now becomes a cultural gatekeeping versus like a a individual gatekeeping yeah an expertise gatekeeping yes yeah which is what things used to be somewhat related i did read an article that i almost thought about talking about on this author coined the word authentic which is a little bit clumsy but essentially their prediction was that technology this year and moving forwards has to embrace more authenticity because of exactly what you just said this cultural gatekeeping that blocks out superficiality Mm -hmm. so uh widespread trend not just in fashion cool well that's all i got man turns out the standing makes us more argumentative yeah i feel like i just was intentionally picking fights with you should we wrap up let's wrap up I gotta go home. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.
weird uh, side effect of standing. I liked it. I liked it too. We were people will love it. They I love think so when too. We argue with each other. I think it's like definitely it's one like, of the more memorable. That's like people's favorite part of this show. How do you open this door? Nope. I, I don't know. Try got again. It. Try again. <laughs> it looks like we're gonna have to just record <laughs> podcasts all day. I feel dumb. What is going on here? Yo, Jerry, save us. All right, watch it. Wave at Arthur. Oh, you caught it! Because you locked it. Did I lock it? Yeah, don't tell people. 